Well, hi, everybody. It's the Cultural Studies Podcast. Toby Miller here. I'm in the Earth Cafe. And is this, does this count as East LA? What are we in? They would prefer you say downtown, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay. And I'm here with a new friend, Mark DeLiantoni. And I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Mark. You are. I do appreciate that. Thank you. I just asked for how to do it, actually, because it can be very offensive when people, in my case, you know, Miller is not too difficult. But I've grown up being called Tony instead of Toby all the time. Even that just sometimes used to agonize me when I was, I don't know, 10. A bit like being told my ears stuck out. I just didn't like it somehow, but now I'm relaxed. Yeah, well, it's 11 letters, and since early, early on, I've... It's always been mangled, and that's okay. In fact, I didn't really understand how to say the name until I myself went to Italy. So, it's even I am at fault. <laughs> and just before uh, we started recording, I was asking you about where the family had come from, and you were saying that, of course, that part of the name is Italian, but also there's Irish and French and German in there, yes. all people coming over from Europe to San Francisco in the 19th century in yes. your heritage. Right. right, that's correct, yeah. So now... Normally what I like to do, rather than start in the 19th century, is start in, <laughs> in the current week. That was so long ago. <laughs> I know. So in the current week, what are you up to? What are you actually doing right now? Right now right. I'm scoring right. two films, two documentary, feature documentaries. One is based out of New York, the other is out of L.A. Um, in both cases they deal with a, a famous person... Confined by their ambition, by their ego. Um, in one case, the score is—it's a little bit more newsy. The New York film is a bit more newsy, um, and the music is more on the nose. Um, probably using a big band of sorts. Not big band music, but there is a sort of late '60s, early '70s, large, forceful jazz feel to the score. Right. And the film here in LA is much more filmic and noir. It's a director I've worked with before and her approach to documentary is more like a narrative film and much more cinematic and uh, more just sort of typically orchestral strings. And wow. So the only thing that holds them together is that they're ostensibly the same genre and about the same kind of person, but in fact they're wildly different. Yeah. 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 Wow, that's exciting. So what a coincidence that you'd have two similar narrative uh, narratives to be playing with to score at the same time. That's well, I don't crazy. tell either of them. They, they, <laughs> right, they think secret. I'm only available. <laughs> I'm completely free. Now, do when you're scoring, mm. do you come in during production, or is it in, in these cases, or is it afterwards? In other words, do they have a kind of dummy score that, that they use? during shooting and editing, or are you there from day one? No, most most people, um, most directors, you're not, the composer isn't entering the picture, so to speak, until really almost the end of the editing phase. Right, right. Um, because as well-written as much film music can be, and as much as it can feel like it's the most important part, it's a reaction to what's happening. I could edit what you and I are saying to each other right now, and that pause that I just put in, I could remove, and no one would know. 
But if that had been scored, and I suddenly removed that second of music, it would sound wrong. Music really is after the fact. It's a reaction to the drama that's taking place on screen. So you really can't enter the process until very near the end of the editing when the story is in place. And the arc of the drama is clear, or at least fairly clear. There are cases of relationships of directors to different composers. They've had a long time working together. Um, or, or maybe say in the case of someone like Philip Glass, the music is very editable and knowable. And as inspiration, the director will use it. I mean, there's even, I mean, there's footage of Stanley Kubrick filming the end scene to The Shining. I don't, well, it takes, it's, I don't know when, at what stage he was filming it, but Jack Nicholson's in the maze, it's freezing, and blaring Stravinsky. Now, Stravinsky didn't end up in the final score of the film, but there's a case where on set, a director's using film as inspiration, it happens. But, you know, it's, it's a new, the idea of editing with music, it's really since the digital editing, which is the last 10, 15 years. Because if the technology prior to, let's just say mid-95, that's not an exact date, but it's a good rough one, people are on flatbeds. You have two, you have a video, a visual track, a dialogue track, and a sound effects track. There's nowhere to slip in music, unless somebody has a little beatbox nearby. So you kind of have to imagine it. You have to get your story right first, and then you bring in a composer. And very often the composer is sitting with the director playing sketches on piano, and just saying, trust me, this will happen. Well, since digital editing, which provides the editor or the director with enormous flexibility, people are, and, and puts the filmmaking in the hands of people with a lot less experience yeah. in storytelling, editing with music has become a much bigger thing and much, something really relied on, which is going to say temp music. So it is completely common to come into a situation where the film is maybe three weeks before it's locked, meaning finished edit, they're still tweaking, and they've got a fair amount of temp in. Maybe it might be my temp. Maybe it might be a composer that they couldn't afford temp. Maybe it might be something they're hoping to be inspired by temp. And um, you've got to deal with that. Yeah. But, that's, but it's usually, it's much later in the process. It's not, because there's no advantage, because if you come in, during the filming, or if you start writing music before the editing, you could be wasting your time. You're rewriting days. for days, yeah. and some of your best ideas, which might have been most appropriate, don't get used because you wrote them at a right. time when they weren't needed. Right. Now, what about a tendency that I think has been around, especially the last 20 years, and perhaps even more so the last 10, which is that yes, there's a score, but especially in say a feature film, narrative fiction film with a biggish budget, a lot of the music is actually, let's call it pop music, and I don't mean that critically, that's put together by somebody who's, say, a DJ at KCRW, which is one of our local <laughs> national public radio stations. Gee, you're not talking about Chris Doritas, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Amongst others, but yes. And if people stick around and watch Hollywood films, they'll see the names of people who either are or have been DJs or producers at that Santa Monica right. Community College station, very often at the end of the credits. <laughs> Pardon me, is that a tendency that you see, and how do composers feel about that? Do well, they get riled up, or are they happy to be part of that, that story? Well, at, 
That's a good question. I mean, a composer would prefer... This is the KCRW helicopter <laughs> flying overhead. <laughs> they just scoped out what we're talking about and they don't like it. <laughs> I mean, a composer would like to write original. You would write. You would like to write an original original music specific for that drama because yep. that drama has specific needs that could be explored. But this gets back to my statement about the confidence and experience of a given director as a storyteller and a given editor as a storyteller. The less experienced and the more money behind the project, it's a lot easier to rely on a reference that everybody knows. Now, it's sort of the big but, chill but model, is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is. I mean, Scorsese's Goodfellas does that. Goodfellas. And, and yeah. is, is that bad? Some of it's fantastic in that, isn't it? I, I'm telling you. And, and then. Yeah. That I mean, stuff at the end with the George Harrison music and all the quick cutting and yeah. the stones. It, there, it's wonderful. Well, and it, let's take someone like Kubrick, who yeah. very rarely had any. In fact, I don't. I'm trying to think. But very, Kubrick very rarely used original music. And even in 2001, he's using the composer Georgi Ligeti, who was a living composer and was a very modern piece written shortly before 2001 was made, but it wasn't written for the film. And Bernard Herrmann, the great composer, took uh, Kubrick to task once in a really interesting essay and uh, kind of berated him for a lack of imagination and, and, and courage, but obviously I, I don't... The results of Kubrick speak for themselves, um, and I'm an enormous fan. But it's got—it's become more crass. I would say, yeah. Yeah. and if I'm shooting myself in the foot and they, <laughs> they will never hire me, well, then that's what's not going to happen. But right. if you were to take some, I mean, DreamWorks is particularly heinous, I would say, when it comes to this kind of stuff. These animations they put out for children, uh, which have been coming out for the last 10, 15 years, and it's just one pop song after another with... With the only intent of just tapping into it, what feels good, and and just it, it saves anybody from having to tell a really compelling deep story. It, it's not competing with say Pixar, Toy Story, where you've got Randy Newman writing brand new songs that really speaks specifically to the drama and make a much more lasting impact. Um, you know it. it a song can be incredibly effective, though. You know, it's, 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 it really depends, depends on, on the context. It depends on the context. It's interesting you should say that, Mark, because last night I was listening to KPCC, which is our other NPR station. I don't know if you heard it. No. But they had a live discussion with Randy Newman, mm. his cousin. Which one, Thomas? No, whatever. Uh, I guess there are several. Is it it's David? There are th three of them that write music, right? I think. Beyond. There's yeah. the grandfather or whatever, Alfred Newman, who's right. like bump da 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 Like the sort of Bernard Herman era. Yes, and yeah. there is Thomas Newman, the amazing right. composer. There's Randy. I mean, it is. It's extraordinary. I mean, if you're talking they about Hollywood royalty, that would and be And then it. a guy, I forget his name, who he was in Yes at one time. Well, South African Chris guy. Squire or... or no, or, South African guy. Oh, Trevor Raymond. Trevor Raymond. And then yes. another guy whose name I didn't catch. Anyway, they yes. were all live last night yeah. at some public event talking about sure. some of these issues and Newman talking about scoring not scoring but actually writing songs for Pixar mm -hmm. and how sometimes it doesn't get accepted and interestingly enough one of the guys and again I'm, I forget his name unfortunately I'm really not an expert on this stuff as you can already tell but he had written some music for video games or electronic games back in the 90s 
forget which ones. But anyway, Spielberg was involved. Who of course, Steven Spielberg, of course, part of DreamWorks, we were just talking about. Yeah. And because of Spielberg, he actually managed to get orchestral scoring in on the game. Which apparently is rarely bothered with. Actually, that's not that's not the case. In fact, video games have so much money behind them. Uh, it's almost always orchestral score. I mean, oh, really? in, the, in the big games, there's a lot of. I mean, maybe in a smaller game, no. But if you're looking at the big video games that are out there, it's common. I mean, well, this guy had only worked with the same directors, the same group sure, on this sure, video game set. Right. I guess he was inaccurate. But so you're saying that they actually will give you guys well, the full Monty if it's a, a major. It depends company? on the game. Right. It depends on the scope of the game. And I shouldn't speak for every single game. And the, and the ones he was referring to. At that particular time, he's probably right that Stephen went out on a limb and said, yeah, you know what, let's make this as full fleshed out as possible. But the profit and the money generated by these games, yeah, there's a whole network of composers, that's their thing. And they're working with full orchestras. They are. Yeah. Interesting. So as far as you're concerned, do you like the idea, do you want to work with full instrumentation of that kind in, in the classic sense? Or, because uh, I think about that versus, uh, you know, you mentioned Philip Glass earlier, where it's a much more minimalist style and design, isn't it? Well, it's, but it's still very full. I oh, mean, it's very it, lush, but it's just yes. a different different sound from that which you get, you know, with you know Bernard Herrmann or, yes. or Alfred Newman. Right. Well, those days, I mean, sure, I, I I like to work with as many instruments as appropriate to the drama at hand. Yeah. And if we need 50, let's get them. And if we can get away with two or three, let's do that as well. It's all effective. You can go back to the third man... And listen to that. Da, 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 One of the simplest and it just goes scores ever. On and, and on it's and stunning. On. Yes, yeah. just stunning. Or something like. Uh, and they had some of the sophisticated recording equipment of their day yeah. for that movie, didn't they? And right. most of the time it's just a. a z- is it a zither? Yeah. And then finally he plays it in the movie. It's brilliant. Yeah. And then you can go to, like, uh, what's that Tom Cruise movie about lawyers in, the, in Memphis or something? And Oh, one of those movies from the, the novel. It's a David. Grisman piano and it's just all piano the whole time pushing away it? and it's very clever or you can look at a I mean Vertigo or I mean it's just a, right. or since we mentioned Thomas Newman the score to Wally which was the first half was absolutely stunning and yeah. a full beautiful score and it didn't sound like it I mean that was sounded so minimal that score even though quite a bit was happening um, it, it just it's really I, I'm 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 not a slave to the film, right. but I, I'm a film composer because I believe in the film. And I come to the table looking to not not do what anybody else tells me to do, but it's, we're serving a drama. We're trying to create a whole something bigger than all of the parts. And sometimes it means bombastic, and other yeah. times it means... Now, most of the budgets, I'm where I'm an independent film composer. I'm not scoring Toy Story. I'm not scoring anything for DreamWorks. So I'm not being handed a budget that says, yeah, 80 people, go for it. So I've got to get more clever and work with fewer instruments, smaller ensembles, right. sometimes doubling the parts up. You, maybe you hire 10 people, you double them up, you, you record them, you record them on top of each other, on top of each other again. And... So at the end of the day, you have 30, 40 people playing, but in fact, it was only five or six or seven, whatever. Um, but does that bring into question whether anybody needs 80 
members of an orchestra that capacity? It does. There is a very specific, unique breath and pacing and uh, to a good conductor in front of a full orchestra. Right. You, it's just, there's a very particular animal that it is. It's a living thing, and it's very particular. And if you were to listen to any great classical recording or great film recording with a proper conductor in front of the orchestra. So far, so good over here, guys. We're very happy, thank you. Yeah, you the birds are happy. Well, the birds are very happy with some leftover cake that those ladies didn't finish. <laughs> but you, but it's, it's just a very, so you don't, ideally, it's not, it's subtle, and if you do it well, you can't tell if it's 10 on top of 10 on top of 10. Yeah. But it's not like 30 all at once with a good conductor. There's yeah. a difference. Yeah, yeah. Now, I wonder if we could uh, take a step back into your past now um, to do a little retrospective. Is that all right? Because Please. this is also, as you're talking, it's making me think about the fact that you've done a lot of different kinds of music, just like Randy Newman has, <laughs> right? Not, not in the same way he has, but just like he has. You've, you've worked in many genres. And I, you know, from what I've read about you online and the information you gave me, uh, you're what we might call classically trained, or am I using the wrong term when I say that? No, I am. I went to conservatory in New York, and I had a very strict, rigorous, traditional Western classical education. I studied piano as a kid, and played Mozart, Beethoven, Bartok, whatever. I have never had designs, though, on being a concert composer. Uh -huh. I grew up in America with pop. Right. And I grew up with cartoons and Carl Stalling and Miles Davis and My Fair Lady and... Bitches Brew. And Bitches Brew and the Sex Pistols and... Right. I mean, I grew up with all this... So you're on a continuum where all those things well, matter? Well, I'm just... No, I'm not continuing them, but it's, it's, these are just, it's like the radio station of my brain. Yeah, and, sure. And how do I participate in that? How do I... And, and I also grew up in an environment that wasn't musical. I, don't, I didn't come from a musical... I mean, having a mother that plays piano isn't the same, but I have no musicians in my family, no one... No one's in theater, no one was in film. Wow, so really? Yeah. There wasn't a way at a very young age to be... to explore specificity. And I just knew that I had wanted to. I, and in fact, I, I think what's really the key, what I came to learn, is that I'm not a musician. I'm a sculptor. A sculptor. It, it took a long time to get there. I have facility as a, I'm a keyboard player, and I have facility at that, and I have facility as a composer. But it took a long time. But I've always experimented with sound and manipulating sound. I've spent a, long, a lot of time working with artists and installation ideas. I um, was lucky enough to meet John Cage several times and visit wow. with him and talk with him. And I, I, you know, I've long been influenced by the idea of incorporating in random objects around the environment. Yep. I mean, you look at you listen to Eric Satie's. Uh, ballet Parade, there's a typewriter, or you, yep. you're you listening to Pink Floyd or The Beatles, most people would know that kind of stuff, and got all kinds of clanging dum, going dum, on. Da -dum, dum, dum, right, there's dum, all kinds of, yeah. And, and, yeah. but these, what could be gimmicky, to yep. me, are real musical events. Sure. And um, how could I incorporate that? And so when I went to school, and I... And they're very cinematic. 
They're very similar. So, if I could interrupt, what yes, I'm thinking please. of is you're saying that it's not only Dark Side of the Moon or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, mm -hmm. but the moment in the 39 Steps, yes, when yes, the yes, cleaning yes. lady finds the dead body yes, and yes. she screams, and then you cut to the shot of a train and its yes, roar. You know, that right. fantastic match on yes. music or. Yeah sound, whatever we call it, and then I'm thinking of Walter Murch and the, the yes. development of sound design. Right. Right? So. Which is completely obliterated by today's, not in every film, but film has become wall-to-wall -wall non-stop music. You mentioned Walter Murch. I mean, you can look at that great scene in The Godfather where Michael is about to kill the cop and he's in the he's in the restaurant. Do you hear tense music? No. Do you hear a bunch of tremolo strings coming at you? No. It's just the sound of the subway car going by outside as he gets the gun and goes out. And it's so tense. I was watching the movie Bullet a oh. while back. And there are so many scenes which today would be full of like a cool song, a hit thing. They're sitting around a telex waiting for this information about, and it's the sound of the telex. You find a lot more of that, and yes, to me, I hear that as, and it's natural to me, it's not a game, I hear that, and I'm very influenced by that, as musical gestures, and so, but my conservatory training put me in New York, yeah. has me finishing school there, studying composition, very traditionally, but at the same time I was also experimenting with a sampler, and this is early, it's like 1991, 92, it's very early in a sampler's day. So they're big, big box, and not the only people who are really using it are like Public Enemy in the studio. And Public Enemy, those are the days. Huh? Those are the days, yeah. and but that was in a studio, and I wanted to bring that live. I wanted yep. to have pieces of mine where I record them, take little bits, take clarinet parts, put it in a sampler, and muck it up, and yep. just play something completely new. Yeah. And I was playing a lot with people like John Zorn and doing a lot of experimenting. Wonderful. Is this sort of knitting factory? Yes, knitting, knitting factory. Days? It used to be on East Houston. It's moved several times since then, but the original knitting factory was in East Houston, just past Lafayette. And it was a hub. I used to go there. Oh, it was a hub. And when I first moved to New York, that was huge to me. Yeah. I would go see Ardo Lindsay and John Zorn, Anthony Coleman, Mark Rebo, Elliot Sharp. And then these people were like mentors, and then they became friends, and then I played with them. And it was a huge influence on... Because I didn't come from jazz, so I didn't, I didn't come from a real participatory music experience. I was always making music by myself, sculpting. This was the first chance I had to like interact with people and collide and clash. They're busy playing instruments. Well, I didn't want to just play piano. How would I collide? I'd collide through my sampler. So this is a bit but, like Brian Eno, in a certain <laughs> sense, do you think? If I, I don't know if that's the wrong name to throw in there, but if I go back 20 no, but, years, I think of what he was doing at Roxy, where you know, they would perform way, live, way better. And Brian Ferry would be playing a yes. soulful piano part, yeah. and the audience would be shouting for Eno, Eno, who was doing, you know, these weird words and weird words and touch. Film, and Phil Manzanera is just yeah. running through Eno's little tape loop. I mean, I would never ever say I'm in league or line with Brian. I just have too much. He he doesn't even need my respect. He just has. I mean, he's Brian Eno, and um, I've been a fan since the '70s, so I, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I didn't put my foot in it by referring to him. But I'm thinking about when you're talking about wanting not to play an instrument, yes, but actually, oh, I see touches and changes. Absolutely, you and know, that came from. But together. even you go back to John Cage and, and David Tudor sure, with sure. their cartridge music recordings in the '50s, where they're taking amplifiers and running contact mics and cont cartridges, scraping surfaces. Yeah. Yes, and it's and. 
that was a big influence. Why do I have to play an instrument? Yeah. I want to do something else. Have you ever seen the YouTube extra excerpt from What's My Line where John Cage oh, is absolutely. the guest? Yes, absolutely. It's just sensational. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of American avant-garde meeting American mass culture. Yeah. And he gets laughed at, but actually, I mean, by the host and the studio mm -hmm. audience, but actually he keeps his dignity and he's incredible, partly because he's so physically impressive. Yeah. And it's astonishing to watch these yeah. two forms of U.S. culture intersect. Right. Like, you know? Well, he, they, they didn't get how much he, he gets about them. Yeah, you know, he completely understood their ears better than they understood yeah. their ears, yeah. and what they, what, what kind of sound they found useful, yeah. they weren't even aware of it. And he was so much more in tune about, in fact, what actually matters to people. Yeah. yeah. So when I had the chance to play sample, it just made a huge difference. But yeah. it led to pop music because the Knitting Factory was a real yeah. sort of kind of melting pot, and then I ended up in a band and where it was really about sampling and mucking it up and but it was out of nowhere. And what was the band called? Soul Coughing. Soul Coughing. Yeah, right. C O U G H I N G. Sure. Um, well, a well known band. It was good for a while. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And I was there on day one and day last. And it's funny because our very, very first rehearsal, the knitting factory was kind of place you could show up at ten o'clock on a Wednesday night and just wing it. And our first rehearsal was all four of us, but I showed up with the tape recorder. And our bass player, Sebastian Steinberg, our drummer, Yuval Gabay, were very accomplished guys in the scene. They were sort of heavies. And they looked at me like, what the fuck are you, like, what's your, what's your trip, man? Why are you not here, you know? But I said, no, I'm just gonna, re I'm just gonna record and, cause I, I, I'm not gonna show up here and just try to make it sound like Bruce Springsteen, you know? I'm not here to like, just play some organ, let's just, and then we had our gig two nights later, and I brought my arsenal. And I had no problem if I had nothing to say, saying nothing. Sitting on the side of the stage, on stage, doing nothing. And if I felt like contributing, and I would. And if I thought that they needed to uh, have something built on me, I would start jumping in. And, and if I wanted to build on top of them, I would do that. And if I didn't want to say anything, and it was it was a very wonderful experience. And so we were together about nine years, and we worked really hard. And but you know, for me, it was like, why have lead guitars? And I was because we had our singer played rhythm guitar, some lead, but he didn't come to the table looking to be a big lead guitar player. So there was a lot of space. And why not have seagulls that I recorded at the beach and then now manipulating with the sampler? Why can't that be the lead guitar after the chorus is finished, as we could before we hit the verse again? Why can't the sound of jackhammers manipulated and slowed down in the way I play them be kind of come an extra musical percussion on top of things, in addition to playing string parts and all kinds of other more traditional? But it, it was a way to really just open up the sonic palette and also speak to the kind of things that were around us. De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest. Um, I mean, this is, you know, early 90s, so it's not like the kind of sampling that's going on now. It was a lot rougher and rawer and, and less in sync than yeah. it is now. And you picked up on my twang when we met and you said you'd been to Australia touring. Was that with that band or was that on no. another occasion? So after a band quit, 
I was ready never to play live music again because I wanted really? to compose for film. And I oh, you'd already you decided that well, because I kind of was in your future. Well, because I kind of started composing for film before the band. I'd been working in the studio, working with installation artists, and I'd done some. I scored some films for William Wegman. Wonderful William Wegman. Yes, the wonderful Bill. Fantastic. And, and uh, so I always wanted to get back to that, and I knew I did. So I was prepared for that, and I, and that takes that takes no touring. You have to like full on do that all the time. So I did, and uh, but while Soul Coughing was a band, David Byrne was a big fan, and he became a friend. And out of the blue, he called one day and said, listen, I just finished an album with Brian Eno. And There's I, that name that keeps coming there up. There it is. And he goes, you know, I, I, I would... I, and, I, and I want to address what it meant to be in Talking Heads. You know, I want to... I don't want to just... I'm not. There won't be strings playing. There won't be horns playing. And would you mind being the keyboard player? And I thought about it, because I hadn't been on tour in so long. And, and you decided that wasn't what you wanted to be. Yeah, but for David... And it was also a chance to go on tour one more time where I had no responsibility. I didn't have to worry, did the sound guy get paid? Do we hire enough buses? <laughs> Is that, you know, I didn't have to worry, are we staying in a nice enough hotel? I didn't have to deal with any of that kind of structural, you know, are the interviews all signed, lined up or whatever? So, and, and I have so much respect for David and I know him well. And it was great. So that tour took me to Australia. Even though with Stoll Coughing, I'd been to Japan and we'd been through part of Asia, but David, you know, ended up in Australia and there I was. We were there, I guess, a week and a half and we played Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, Brisbane. Wow. And was that part of a world tour? It was. was it just... mm -hmm. Gosh. Now, I'm, I'm interested. Oh, speaking of, you know, sampling and weird noises, didn't they make... This has come together by the Beatles. Didn't they make their sh sound by kind of clapping their hands and blowing through their fingers or something? I never... I don't doubt it. I don't put anything past George Martin. Yeah. Talk about the fifth Beatle, huh? Talk about the Brian Eno before Brian Eno. Yeah, I mean, and of course really he'd been a comedy producer, hadn't he? He was classically trained, but he'd yes, made comedy records like Peter Sellers and whatnot. Yes, doing performance work. Right, he's quite a studio. keyboardist. I mean, you'd, people would be stunned to know how many keyboards—not the Billy Preston ones, but he plays. Earlier ones. Oh, yeah. he plays all over the records. I mean, he's a brilliant writer, arranger. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, it's old school. Yeah, it's none of this like what's the lowest known in cello? You know, even though you're. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've been on, on panels with modern film composers who, and it just teaches you so much about modern Hollywood yeah. and the re what's needed. Because with the advent of so much powerful technology, you don't really have to come up through the ranks anymore. You, you're, you're a good problem solver, you have a good dramatic sense, you hire an orchestrator to write all your orchestra parts, you come up with a melody or two. And I was on a panel once with a very well-known film composer who had scored some really big films, and he leaned over at one point and said, what's the lowest note in the cello? And I almost <laughs> fell over. And I just, as if that even mattered, but still I kind of fell over. Because <laughs> I know Thomas Newman knows, I know Randy Newman probably knows what the lowest note is, but George Martin certainly knew it. One of the things in the conversation last night that I keep referring to, which you have to check out, I'm sure it's available online, and I think they were streaming it with video as well, is when they were talking about, it might have been Randy Newman, because he's a wonderfully skeptical guy, talking about the disdain people have for composers, scorers of film scores, composer film scores who are referred to as hummers. 
because they hum this to somebody who can read music and then write it down yes. and prepares it for others. And yeah. One of the nice things about George Martin is that when he would talk about John and Paul, he would say they would come in and hum something or play it on the guitar or whatever, and I think McCartney still doesn't read music or write it in that sense. He had absolute respect for them. He didn't have contempt for the fact that... Well, they, they were writing the songs. <laughs> I mean, he still comes to the table with yesterday. You know, so... Right. Yeah, so, okay, I'll do your string part. No problem. <laughs> Eleanor Rigby, I'll, I'll do it. Okay, all right, all right. You know, he comes to the table with that. It's different than coming to the table with, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, give me some cellos and stuff. Now, these people give are geniuses, brass. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but it was still... It was interesting the way that he would talk about people... Martin, and when you hear them in an interview, with absolute respect for mm -hmm. what they're doing regardless. But obviously there is something special about many of the technical aspects that McCartney himself would admire Absolutely. and talk about that he didn't know right. and still doesn't. Well, it was a band, yeah. and that's what a band is. And a lot of singers forget that. You know, it's easy to forget how important the drummer is to you, as a singer especially, because music is... And it is reflective of the accent of the way people speak. That's why Cuban music sounds the way it does. That's why South American, I shouldn't even say South American, Northern Brazilian, Eastern Brazilian, the jungle of Argentina, French, Marseille versus French, Rennes. The, each of us speaks with an accent. Yeah. And that's where the drummer falls. And that's why when John Bonham died, Jimmy Page said, we're done. That's why. That's why the when. Yeah. yeah. That's why when Keith Moon died, they still toured, but they didn't write anymore, because the the clave was gone. What gave something its individual accent was gone, and that's a band. And the band was the Beatles. And as much as say at certain points Paul would be no play the drums like this, play this. you still have to deal with the way Jeff Emerson or George Martin are mixing it. You still have to deal with John playing the guitar a certain way. You have to deal with the way people want you know you it's not all just up to you and that's a band and so of course and you really should only be in a band with people you have some level of respect for and in a situation like that you know it's so when you were in the tour with David Byrne, mm. I imagine that in a David Byrne event, it's much more than a conventional band. It is like a big event because there are probably lots of people doing lots of things that are quite different from what you would get with, let's say, conventional rock stadium performance. How do you mean? Well, there are people like you who might be playing something that might be manipulating tape sounds. There are well, people who might be dancing or Well, there were people shows, dancing for right? sure. You know I mean? Well, it was pretty straight ahead for me. Was it? It wasn't, okay. it yeah. wasn't the case because Talking Heads material isn't, uh, there's not sampling based. But it was tricky because if you look at any footage of the Talking Heads or have gone to a Talking Heads concert as I have back when they were filming Stop Making Sense, there's two keyboardists on stage, and there's two guitar players, and there's two percussionists. And because David, on this particular tour, was incorporating modern dancers, it meant the back line was trimmed. And so it was just me on keyboards. And it became a, 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 it was a physical, it was complicated. You're doing what in, stop making sense for those who may not know, is I guess, certainly would vie for the best music documentary Pretty fucking that we close. can think of, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. really amazing. And yeah, name another. Yeah. And well, I'm, I'm not we, the biggest fan of The Last Waltz. I mean, I, I was just about to negate ways. that. Point. Everyone says it's the best. Yeah, but it's ever, not. But I don't think it is. <laughs> Sorry, Marty. So, yeah, right. <laughs> We're both bigger than him anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, physically. Oh, 
as if that well, you should see with a 45 Magnum you know. <laughs> then I think I'd show even more respect but it's often cited as the greatest sort of concert it's, film it's pretty damn time. brilliant yeah. um, but uh, it's electric anyway so I had to juggle a lot of little tiny bits and yeah. a lot of the sensibility of Talking Heads and I wasn't playing the exact parts, but you have to, because it's not about that. It's about bringing your sensibility to it. But still, David's singing the same words. Yeah. So you've got to kind of be in the ballpark. But it was it was pretty complicated, and it was a real. I mean, it took a, took a while to get up to speed, especially even songs like we played, uh, Born Under Punches. I mean, I was playing like. It was like a little African thing where I would have like four different parts at the same time and because I was using different keyboards, like reaching all over the place. And it might be just a little blip that would happen on the third beat of every third measure just to do it. And I mean, as far as David, it was so much fun. He's such a great listener. Like playing with David, the, the thing about playing with David, A, we had amazing musicians on stage. Everybody on stage was just gracious and fantastic. And, and then there's David. And he opens his mouth, and when he sings, it's like a valley. I mean, you could, you could do anything you want and it will be okay. Because he's going to cover it. His voice and his attitude will cover it. But he was so in tune. You could just throw in little gestures, sometimes to be funny, and he'd be right there. You know, his, he'd, his whether a dance body movement, or a little guitar riff, or a little change in the voice, or just a little hiccup, hiccup pause that he'd throw in there. He was just so aware, and he was not at all. The tour was just so much fun because it wasn't about here I am in front, check me out, and yeah. these other people behind the curtains. And it sounds as though there was a bit of flexibility there too, because when you're talking about one of those famous rock bands of all time. But it's also part of the avant-garde, the history of American avant-garde, mm. the world's avant-garde. Mm. You've got a, some section of the audience that wants to hear the hits. Oh, and we gave them. And I'm sure you <laughs> did, but uh, my sense is that you could put little trills in or whatever to uh, just G things up and make it genuinely live. Well, what I took as my inspiration was Bernie Worrell. Because everybody thinks of Bernie Worrell and burning down the house. But that's not him on the record. That's not him playing those parts. But how did he then make it his own? Even though he still plays basically what's on the record. But no one thinks of it like that. Or when that's, that is, um, and so, I mean, that was just an inspiration for me, just a kind of calming, because we ended up playing Burning Down the House, and that was, you know, at one point I was like, well, okay, I see how Bernie made it his own. What's the edge I want to bring to it? Yeah. What, what, how am I going to change these gestures and make them my own? Um, and and you know, David never he he never needed you to do exactly what the album did. You weren't you weren't going to come in from left field and just start doing something else because that would be irrelevant. But it wasn't about just cop it, you know, just just do what they've done. Just not being a tribute band, no, or, no, or no. foreigner no. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't only like one guy left, and he's. <laughs> If, you know, is Lou Graham still in Florida? Instead of drinking tea, <laughs> if I had something else to drink, I could clear this restaurant or cafe and make it much quieter by doing a version of I Want to Know What Love Is. You know, the, yeah. or, or you'd be asked to leave. <laughs> this table, no, no, no. This table would be quieter. <laughs> <laughs> so in any event, uh, you're on this world tour, which I imagine is physically and mentally exhausting as well as exhilarating. No, that's a breeze. I've been on tour many times. Being on tour is a breeze. Really? Yeah. 
a good tour is a breeze. You have a great regular schedule. You have your sound check. You have your gig. You give it everything. You, but you stay out. You meet all kinds of cool people. You go to clubs. You sleep in the bus. You sleep in the hotel. You get up. You exercise. You swim. Eat some good food. Go on a hike. Go to a good museum. The next day, hey, I'm back in a new place, and you're playing fabulous places. Right, right. So um, it's not uh, it's not the worst life. But once it's over, what does it feel like at the end of I don't know how months these things must last? Yeah, you, well, you go back to, back to New York. Well, I, no, I'm in LA. I live in LA. I work out of New York a lot. I go back and forth. Right. Um, so at the end of a year of being so well, close you, and intimate you, with all these people. Well, that's what's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you know the way. The the tour works, you go out for four weeks, take two off. Go out for five, take three off. Go out for six, take a week off, depending, you know, where you're touring, how it's going. Um, but, uh, yeah, when it's, you know, I'd already built that muscle from all the Soul Coffin touring, because we toured a lot, Europe, Asia, Canada, U.S., all the time. So, and, you know, if you end up in that kind of lifestyle, you're geared for it anyway. You yeah. Know, it wasn't, I didn't, I, I, I I didn't, it didn't wear me out. It, it actually is quite invigorating. Do you want me to bring more home water for you? Uh, no, I'm all right. Thank you very much. But it's quite invigorating. And it's in a fresh audience every night in a new city. And, you know, when, if you wake up in Barcelona and you hang out for two days, and then the next day you're in Madrid, and then you're out in Porto, you can deal with it. It's okay. <laughs> and why not? So do you go back to scoring after that? Yes, I did. Right. Because I had scored... I I scored a film called Roman Plansky Wanted and Desired, um, which was adopted, did really, really well, and I came back and picked up where I left off. Now, I must admit, I haven't seen that film. Can I you tell us, it. tell us a bit about what the score does? I mean, I, I can well, imagine tricky. some of what the story is. But. Well, okay, the story focuses on his trial and why he took off. But the editor, Joe Beanie, B-I-N-I, who's a really great editor, um, and, and I, he's an old friend, we, we have great reverence and awareness of Roman. So it wasn't, a, it, we didn't aim to make a documentary that was newsy. We made it in the style of one of his films. Wow. Which meant that in a couple of cases, we're watching you know, the, the quotes, it's got, you've got clips of his films on. Well, when I have a clip of his film, you'd have part of that score. Well, what happens in between? It can't sound like noodly documentary score. <laughs> I mean, I had to really dig in and write. And I had to write a wide... I mean, I was writing for large strings, small strings, quirky, uh, you know, 13-piece kind of messed up ensembles with, like, in an Eastern European style because if you listen to his sensibility, it's Eastern European classical music even though it's in film. And so that means it's, sh it's jazzy, shorter melodic cells, um... And it's exciting, and it had to seamlessly thread that because it couldn't at any point sound like documentary because we had wall-to-wall -wall music nonstop. There weren't, even though there was talking heads, stuff was happening, and the talking head would come on for a second, and then bam, we would hit it with a lot of collage and a lot of transitions and make the story as exciting as Roman is and as, as just dizzy as the whole scene. I mean, you have a guy who... The film explores it all. I mean, it doesn't hide anything. There's no apology for Roman. It's not it just talks about that circumstance. You have a guy who rapes a 13-year-old girl, but yet, due to other people's screw-ups, he's in a position to escape, and he does. And but he but he kind of but he escapes kind of legally. It's weird. He escapes legally, and then people are pissed off, and they want him back. And then the judge dies. The judge dies. And yes. then nowadays, of course, the victim of his violation actually says, "You know what? 
Let it go. Leave I me met, alone. I met her and her mother. Did you? Uh -huh. I had dinner with them. <laughs> she said, let me go for years. For years, since early 90s, they, they did a court settlement, civic, civil, whatever you call that, and uh, I guess privately. You know, now I'm, I'm not an authority on this, but I know that privately, whatever, they had, they came to an agreement. They came to an arrangement. Does it yeah. heal everybody? No, I mean, no. Does it make anything better? No, but they came to their arrangement, and this film was just simply exploring the events of that specific period, and like I said, it goes into graphic detail, so it in no way exonerates. It is a horrendous crime. Oh, and the film just details it, right, big right, time. Right. I mean, her testimony is unbelievable. What year does the film come out? 2007? 2007. Yeah. So you're Six, working seven? on it in... 2006. 2006. Yeah. Wow. And what happens to you after that? Or what do you make happen after that? That must have been an incredibly wrenching emotional experience. Um, no, no, no. I keep telling you your life is difficult and you keep telling me it's not. Well, that's I'm not wrenching. That's just like, no, it's just working hard and you're working on something you love. So um, yeah. it gets exhausting and your brain is tired, but you're not, there's nothing, you're, yeah. you're actually better for it. Um, you go on to another film. And, or out of nowhere, David Byrne. Because literally the month and a half after that film came out, because we'd been at Sundance, and this was before, and uh, Weinstein bought it. It was going to go to theatrical release and then go to HBO. And David called. And suddenly, well, okay. And David took some prep, so I had to deal with that. And then after David, I came back and did more film, worked with Joe Bean again, and led to say, my most recent score, which was a Werner Herzog film called Into the Abyss. And just keep marching on. Wow. And that's a also a very renowned film. And, of course, he's a... I mean, one of the most renowned film directors in history. Ever. Yes, yes. The man's a genius. He's. I mean, Roman's a genius too. But I didn't. When you, I didn't. We didn't. I didn't work with Roman, and I didn't work with Roman of Chinatown. I didn't work with Roman of The Tenant. I didn't work with Roman of Rosemary's Baby. But I, 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 I think Werner's never changed. He's. The Aguirre guy is still here. That's still so him. Aguirre, Wrath of God, That's from right. the mid-70s. Sure. And Don Fitzcarraldo Exactly. From and he ages. is the same man. And he just is a legend to me. And he deserves it all. And he's, he's the perfect balance between brute force ego and utter humble. He's such a humble... He's somebody who... He takes every moment at face value. You know, he doesn't enter a situation of cynic sarcasm and doubt. He would meet you, and he he would believe that you're a human being and you're worth listening to. He might get bored with you later, as any of us do, and leave. But but he doesn't. I mean, when I start singing, I want to know what love is. <laughs> I don't know. He might. But he. But you know, that's what makes him so constantly so relevant and making such intense work. Yeah. Is that he? He's not. He's not entering, it's not, oh, I've got to make another film now, or I'm kind of tired. He's very aware of, he's just, his ears. We get that, that's what we said about John Cage earlier. Werner's ears are wide open and, and absolutely willing to hear what is new and not pass any judgment on it. It's just phenomenal. And in terms of that movie, what was your experience of, of scoring it into the abyss? Unbelievable, because for me, who traditionally scores independent film, where people have digital equipment and they take forever and they can never decide, this is not to speak illy of anybody, because they all work very hard and they're all good, but um, 
You're talking about a master of the art. So for him, it's like, in the way Giobini works, it's like taking huge chunks of clay and just throwing them together. We were supposed to be recording the final mix at the end of July. So I was hired at the beginning of May. Uh, we were supposed to do, I would have two months to score, supposed to be done at the end of July. I got a call, Werner went off to Siberia for a project, I got a call from Joe at the like second week of June and said, hey, Werner's back like the first of July, you got the, is the score finished? I was like, wow, and I, I said, I haven't even talked to Whoops. Werner. Well, we, we hung out and smoked cigarettes and talked about um, <laughs> something else. And he was just, his confidence was just fantastic. And he, he just didn't fuss, you know, he just let me go. And, uh, I mean, he would say something like, this distracts from the scene a little bit much, do with that instruction as you will, or I could have more melody here, do with that what you will. It was not, he was not a tinkerer. He was not coming into my space. He was just so confident in his process, so confident in his ability to tell a story, he knew that the music wouldn't actually distract, he wasn't fearful the music would distract from the story. He just knew that if he did his thing, he liked what I was doing, go ahead and do it, and we're done soon. And so, uh, you know, normally projects take me, don't take me, but I'm on them for six months, and with Werner, seven weeks, we were out of there. It was fabulous. Yeah. In terms of the film itself, I guess it's in one of his big hits of recent times, let's say. Well, he's got Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Is probably, I think that's the best-selling documentary theatrically of all time, possibly. I mean, Gri Grizzly Man yeah, is, sure. uh, is just phenomenal. Also, yeah. he's but had a Into the Abyss is turning, it's slowly becoming a big deal. And after the theatrical release, they broke it into segments with separate interviews with Death Row guys, and now it's already been on BBC. And I'm just getting email from the craziest corners of Europe people who have seen the film and are interested in the score and it's just another because it, it's a it's a very compelling dramatic story even though it's not a story but it's presented as one and uh, typical Werner it just <laughs> and some people have the ability to speak for lots of us in incredible ways yeah. yeah so I wondered we've got about 10 minutes left sure. I wondered if we could if you could reflect a little bit on a couple of things about the state of film music today more generally. Sure. One I wanted to ask you about, which we've discussed a little bit, is technology. Mm. We've already talked about how that's changing things. Is that making your life easier or more difficult, or is that too simplistic an opposition to draw? No, it's, it makes, technology always makes things I, I don't know if easier is the word, but the technology always expands the horizon. People who are afraid of technology aren't interesting to me. Technology is moving at a very fast pace now, so that intimidates people. But if we're speaking of music, Beethoven expanded the piano. Brahms was suddenly working with valved horns versus crooked horns. Those were huge, huge changes. Metal winds versus wood winds. The differences in strings. These these were huge movements forward that didn't seem to inhibit anybody. Mm. That seemed to uh, George Martin. You know George Martin's recording. Um, Sergeant Pepper's on a four track. 
completely new technology. How fantastic. Look what they did with it. 16 track comes along and you've got, I don't know, name your band, Dark Side of the Moon, I don't know, whatever is your thing. People are doing it. Technology is always good. It's how it's used. With film, what happens is as a composer, what technology means is that one is able to produce a much more real sounding orchestral score without actually using any orchestral instruments. Because what are called virtual instruments, they exist inside your computer, you still have to play them. But you, if you spend the money and get fancy software of violins, you've got violins with attaché and staccato and all kinds of different bowings and up bow and, and a solo and trio. And if you know what you're doing, you can fool a lot of people. And is that a bad thing? I'm really not sure yet. You know, is it, is it bad that the technology is allowing less talented people to make it? Or is it bad that the technology is just preserving everything? There are a bunch of horrible composers during box time, and just by virtue of the fact that fire burns paper and paper erodes, we have no idea who they were and we don't need to. <laughs> now everything is saved, put up, digitized, preserved, you know, commodified, and it just means we're exposed to and preserved to a lot of things that we don't, I don't know, that we don't, necessarily need but you know I'm, I'm not, not going to speak against technology at all it's been it's been a huge benefit to me I've used it in ways that completely opened my mind and challenged me most of my heroes did the same thing from John Gage to Brian Eno to David Byrne to Werner Herzog I mean you know it's like that's technology is wonderful and useful and hey if, if, if somebody's good enough to make it sound amazing with just themselves Go ahead. If it's if it's great music that still serves the film, I don't care how it's made. I don't care. What, what does that matter? What, what does that matter? It's just what is the intent behind something? What is the achievement of something? We, we all love things that are made by one person hitting a, a bell, and we all love stuff that's made by 100 people doing something together. It's not... It's, it's, it's a good time to be alive, you know? Yeah, I'm very struck by a tour that I think maybe is even on now in Europe by Kraftwerk. Oh, have uh, you seen? Well, in, they just did that multi-night thing yeah. at the MoMA in, Sam, in New York. And in New York as yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what extraordinary, what extraordinarily prescient people. Oh, unbelievable. In terms of what they were doing even before Talking Heads, before Eno. Absolutely, yeah. Well, similar, probably, yeah, before Eno, I guess so, yes. I before guess Roxy, anyway. Sure, sure. Um, uh, or one thinks of Stockhausen. Well, that's a whole... <laughs> yeah, the roof gets blown off when you're talking about him. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But as you say, you, you can take it back to Brahms and Bach and Beethoven to hear what happens when there are technological innovations. Yeah, I mean, who, who would deny the value of a printing press? Oh, people should be doing calligraphy. You must look at every invention as, as technology. You can't just say, well, today's technology is horrible, but that one was good. Because, in fact, of course, they're all building one hopes on the past. Uh, the it's, idea is that the newest technologies can be good warehouses. Yes. And the most important thing is that they manage to warehouse everything possible. Yes. So that we really don't lose what was achieved in, in the past. I'm very struck the number of television antennae sold in the United States when 
went up last year. Just like more and more people are now, yeah, are now buying record players <laughs> because of the supposed warmth of the sound yes. compared to digital. Yes. So what interests me is that it's possible still to have a warehouse where these other technologies can be used, rather than simply saying that's old hat and I'm not interested. Well, no, you go into great recording studios and still the, the mixing board, the whatever it's. There's vintage Neve equipment. I mean, you know, a great studio has a combination of everything. Some some weird piece of gear from 1959, some great invention from 85, some yeah. thing just made last week by some guy in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about having it all. It's not about throwing something away or not accepting Forgetting it. Forgetting about it. Yeah. So, the last thing I wanted to ask sure. you about was to get you to... I was going to say pontificate, that's slightly rude of me, I don't mean it that way. <laughs> As but if to, I haven't. <laughs> but to share a little bit more of a word you used, you've used a few times that interests me, which is sculpture. Yes. That you see yourself yes. as a sculptor. Yes, I am. And certainly the, the expression sound sculpture was something that I was hearing in the 70s, yes. but it's not something I hear as much nowadays for some reason. Yes. And it's an interesting metaphor because it's very physical. Yes, I know. but. And I'm not working with clay, I don't work with stone or, or any kind of metal, and I don't work with wood. But still, components of sound are elements that get put together. Now, it's not the same as a piece of marble where I'm taking away. I'm, I'm gathering elements or imagining elements and gluing them together. But it becomes a form that I shape, and that's the way I think about it. I, I, even though I improvise and play often, but I, there's such a large part of the, of the creative process that is important to me, and it's the, the additive, the tinkering, turning the object around. I mean, I can imagine when I write, I have a three-dimensional picture in my head, and I can turn the object around and see another side of it, or see it from below or on top, and the way I'm hearing instruments, and it's like an intuitive sense. It's like, well, that little, that little moment over there, I'm going to put something in. I don't, those, those two bassoons, I, I, mean, I need to change the counterpoint in the second bassoon, or depending on the score, and I, there's not enough scraped kitchen hardware here, and I, 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 it's not musical enough. And then you fix that, and then it's like a seesaw. It creates a moment somewhere else you need to deal with. And it becomes like dealing with a three-dimensional, to me, it becomes like dealing with a three-dimensional object, even though the final result is a two-dimensional stereo presentation. So rather like Cage, and we've mentioned quite a lot, there's a mixture here of something that is quite extraordinary and unusual, and sometimes not even thought of as music, that is out there, and something that is very everyday and ordinary. I mean, his genius is multifold, obviously, but part of it was to bring together the avant-garde and the very ordinary. Yeah. And do that in the context of beautiful sounds and beautiful music. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I guess I think of him as an arranger of objects, along with many other things. Yes. And it is very three-dimensional. So I, I really appreciate your giving us that, that sculpting metaphor mm -hmm. and take and to have taken us inside your work it's oh, fantastic so thank you so much for having me i, I appreciate would it. love it if when you finished scoring these documentaries and they're out uh, you'd come back into the pod and promote them please tell us thank you so much them. okay great Cheers.